Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. President Trump disavows the Iran nuclear deal and threatens to leave it all together if Congress doesn't amend it to permanently block Iran from building nuclear weapons or intercontinental missiles. Jake Sullivan, a top negotiator on the Iran deal under President Obama, tells the story of why it got done the way it did and how it feels to watch the president threaten to undo it. It's Monday, October 16th. Jake, what was the status of the relationship between the U.S. and Iran when the Obama White House started to talk about the possibility of a nuclear deal? The relationship had been in a deep freeze going all the way back to 1979, which is when the Iranian revolution occurred. And there had been no direct face-to-face bilateral talks between the United States and Iran in decades. And Iran at that point was racing ahead on its nuclear capability. At a massive pro-government rally in Tehran, President Ahmadinejad declared that Iranian scientists had enriched uranium to 20% for the first time, declaring Iran a nuclear state. He denied that the country sought a nuclear bomb. So the clock was ticking on Iran moving forward to the point where it would be able to produce the material necessary for nuclear weapons in relatively short order. When Iran's President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad speaks out candidly, and he does it a lot, He scares a lot of people. The U.S. and other Western countries have suspected Iran's nuclear program is geared towards weapons. The Iranians insist it's peaceful, but diplomats say this new report points to one thing and one thing only. Iran is seeking to develop a nuclear weapons program. And so President Obama felt that we had to work aggressively to try to rally the international community to pressure Iran and and bring Iran to the table so we could put a lid on their program. So, Jake, tell me the story of when those discussions began in earnest inside the Obama White House. From the very first day in office. To those who cling to power through corruption and deceit and the silencing of dissent. In his inaugural speech, he talked about reaching out America's hand if other countries like Iran would unclench their fists. That we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist. He sent an early signal about being willing to engage. But he also told the rest of the world who was doing business with Iran, was buying their oil, was doing financial Mm -hmm. transactions with them, that they had to join us in 
essentially cutting Iran off from the international economy so that we could sharpen Iran's choice and let them know that they had no choice but to sit down and do this deal. A significant uh, regime of sanctions uh, that will indicate to them how isolated they are uh, from the international community as a whole. So over the course of 2010 and 2011, the sanctions were beginning to bite. Mm -hmm. uh, we were reducing Iran's oil exports from two and a half million barrels a day down to a million barrels a day. We froze tens of billions of dollars in Iranian assets overseas. And so late in 2011 and at the beginning of 2012, President Obama began talking in earnest with our national security team uh, at both the State Department and at the White House about how we would actually construct an approach to the Iranians. Mm -hmm. Problem was that we didn't have a means of communicating with them directly hmm. because we had no history of it. We right. had no channels. We had no diplomatic presence in Iran and, and they had no diplomatic presence in Washington. So it was a puzzle. How do you actually construct a negotiation now that you've built up all this leverage through sanctions? And that was how the idea of setting up a discrete bilateral channel through a third country came into focus. And we began exploring how we might do that. And tell me, how do you do it? What did you guys actually do? Well, President Obama had heard entreaties from a whole bunch of different countries around the world. Everybody wanted to be the broker between the United States and Iran. Hmm. This was seen as you know a potential big diplomatic coup. But pretty early on, he and Secretary Clinton recognized that the Gulf country of Oman, a small country on the Persian Gulf, presented an interesting possibility because they maintained good relations both with the United States and with Iran. President Obama called the Sultan, asked him if he would test the concept hmm. with the highest levels of the Iranian government. And that ultimately led to a first foray where a small team of us went to Oman to meet with Iranians in private, in secret, to establish the basis for that channel. Tell me about that trip. So the first time that we met face-to-face -face in this secret channel was in the summer of 2012, and it was three of us. There were two officials from the White House and myself who all arrived in Oman on commercial flights, quietly, discreetly. Uh, we were each individually picked up on the tarmac. Uh, we went to a U.S. diplomat's house uh, that was at the time unoccupied, and there was only wow. one bed. And more than one person. Yeah, right, exactly. So I slept on the couch, and the, then uh, Omani officials brought us to a conference room uh, at an Omani government compound and brought the Iranian delegation to the same conference room. Uh, we entered from separate sides of the room through different doors and began a conversation to basically ask two questions. First, was this channel authorized from the highest levels of both of our governments? Mm -hmm. And second, were the Iranians prepared to have a serious conversation about meaningful constraints on their nuclear program that could give the world confidence that they wouldn't go for a bomb. And we felt by the end of a marathon session of negotiating that the answer to the first question was yes. Hmm. Uh, in fact, this was an authorized channel. These weren't just guys off the street, but that the answer to the second question at that time in the summer of 2012 wasn't yet yes, hmm. that they weren't yet prepared to have the kind of conversation about what they would have to do to get the sanctions relief they were looking for. So that meeting ended 
with us concluding we should do this, we should try for a bilateral channel, this is the best way to get to a deal, but we need to give the sanctions more time to work and to give the Iranians time to think about what their options are and then try to come back a second time. Who knew about these talks at the time? A very small circle of people in the U.S. government. I put the number probably in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 folks, which in the U.S. government, given the sprawling size of our national security apparatus, is, is a tiny number. When did these talks actually become public? When did the world find out you were actually doing this? So the interesting thing is that in October and November of 2013, after months of the secret mano a mano negotiations, U.S. and Iran, we transferred the basic understandings we had reached in that channel to the larger multilateral process, mm -hmm. this P5 plus one process. And it was at that point, late October, early November of 2013, that our lead negotiator in the P5 plus one process, Wendy Sherman, began to tell our partners that we had conducted these hmm. discrete negotiations. Now, all of that remained out of sight of the press through two rounds of negotiations in Geneva. Hmm. And so Bill and I, Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns, and the two of us were there in Geneva for the negotiations, but hiding in the background, uh, taking service elevators and uh, slipping in and out of rooms hmm. because we we were still keeping it under wraps that, that this channel had, had existed. And it was only after... Today we have reached a critical milestone... Secretary Kerry and Minister Zarif and the other members of the P5 plus one announced the interim agreement. And today I can tell you that the political understanding with details that we have reached is a solid foundation for the good deal that we are seeking. That the existence of the, the private channel was revealed. So you had to make sure, it sounds like you're saying, that, that other foreign partners were on board with what you were negotiating with Iran before you locked it in. Right, because ultimately we were not going to negotiate on, on behalf of the world. We could only lay out mm -hmm. from the United States' perspective what the elements of the deal would look like. And so we consistently made clear to the Iranians along the way, we can reach certain understandings between us, but ultimately this is going to have to be accepted and bought into by all of the world powers. Today, after two years of negotiations, the United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. It was a very proud day and, you know, the end of a very difficult negotiation and then the start of a very intense enforcement period. But for that day, at least, I felt that it was a, it was a genuine victory for diplomacy, for hard-nosed, patient diplomacy, and something for which President Obama and his entire team should be very proud. I want to thank our negotiating partners, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia, China, as well as the European Union, for our unity in this effort, which showed that the world can do remarkable things when we share a vision of peacefully addressing conflicts. Peter Baker, you actually covered the Iran deal for The Times. What did it actually do, and what were the criticisms? Well, the deal was meant to trade sanctions that the international community, led by the United States, had imposed on Iran over the course of years. 
for Iran foregoing its nuclear program for a certain amount of time. So Iran got rid of its most of its enriched uranium. It dismantled a number of its equipment that it was using to develop nuclear fuel. And in exchange, the United States said, okay, it's now all right to do business with Iran in certain instances. What it did not do, and this is where President Trump is quite critical, it did not put any restrictions on Iran in terms of developing really its own ballistic missile capacity or its support for terrorist groups around the Middle East or its support for Bashar al-Assad in uh, Syria or other things that make Iran an adversary. It wasn't intended to, but because it doesn't, a lot of people have found it wanting. So it's an imperfect deal on the, on the part of uh, many, many views in Washington. The question is whether getting rid of it at this point would accomplish what the people who don't like it want to accomplish. I've been doing deals for a long time. I've been making lots of wonderful deals, great deals. That's what I do. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. So, Jake, President Trump and other critics of the deal have said that it benefited Iran and that that legitimized Iran as a nuclear power in a way. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, in terms of legitimizing Iran as a nuclear power, the deal permanently bars Iran from ever acquiring a nuclear weapon. It permanently bars Iran from engaging in any weapons-related nuclear activities. And it permanently establishes a system of inspections in Iran to make sure that all of that happens. So there is no legitimation or other affirmation of Iran as a nuclear power, there is an abject denial of it in the deal. It's, per- Secondly, it's, it's permanent, even though there, it seems that there's some kind of a, a 10 or 15 year window. So, so all of this talk of sunset clauses, there are certain things in the deal that do not sunset, what I just described. Okay. See, critics of the deal like to say, you know, after 10 years, Iran gets a bomb. That's part of the deal, which of course is nonsense, uh, not by any stretch. Uh, they are permanently barred, as I said, from ever ac- acquiring a nuclear weapon. There are restrictions that expire, restrictions on the number of centrifuges that they can have, and after 2030, restrictions on the amount of uranium that can be maintained inside of Iran under strict accountancy and inspection, but, but inside of Iran. And the United States retains the right after those restrictions expire to take whatever action we need to take if they are trying to advance their program in threatening ways because the commitment they've made under this deal is that they will be barred from any form of weapons-related nuclear activity for all time. Can you lay out for people who find this confusing what you think it will mean on a practical level for President Trump to decertify the Iranian nuclear deal, everything that you spent all these years working on? So the issue of certification is not actually in the Iran deal itself. It is in the legislation that Congress passed to allow the deal to go into place. And what it says is that every 90 days, the president has to certify that Iran is complying with the deal and that the deal is in the national security interest of the United States. President Trump has certified twice that that is the case, but he decided he couldn't do that again. Mm -hmm. In decertifying, in choosing to say, I will not certify uh, this deal, he triggers under that law that Congress passed 
a period where Congress can decide whether to reimpose all of the sanctions that mm-hmm. were eased under the deal. Now, what is likely to happen based on signals from Congress is that they're not going to reimpose all of the sanctions mm-hmm. under the deal, that the, the deal will continue. But instead, what they're going to try to do, or at least what some Republicans are going to try to do, is rewrite the deal by American legislation, which, of course, has made our European partners say, well, what are you guys doing here? You know, this was a deal among mm-hmm. the world powers in Iran. You can't do that. But that puts us on a course, however that plays out, where the rest of the world now has concerns about America's word and good faith, and where Iran can turn to the Europeans and others and say, we're not the bad actors here. We're not the ones posing a risk. It's Washington. And from my perspective, that means that as we go forward to try to address all of the issues that weren't addressed in this deal, we do so with the rest of the world less confident in us and and in our staying power. And so it creates a huge number of questions about whether one year from today this deal will still be in place. And we shouldn't have those questions. We should be enforcing this deal. We should be committing to it. And then we should be dealing with the broader range of challenges Iran poses separately, but not cast this deal into doubt or play games with it. And that's unfortunately what this decertification process has done. Jake, thank you very much. Thank you. On Sunday, the foreign minister of Iran, Mohammad Zarif, offered a response of his own, warning Trump's decision would hurt America's credibility overseas. The way President Trump is handling it, it's widening the mistrust not only between Iran and the United States, but between the global community and the United States, where the U.S. is no longer not just unpredictable, but unreliable. We'll be right back. It's go time. As in, now's the time to go open and fund a Fidelity IRA. By contributing up to the $6,000 maximum limit before the extended 2020 federal income tax deadline of May 17th, you could reduce your taxable income. So don't wait. Visit fidelity.com slash the daily to make a tax smart move today. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity does not provide tax advice. Consult a tax professional regarding your specific situation. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. Here's what else you need to know today. The death toll in Somalia's capital city, Mogadishu, rose to more than 200 over the weekend, with at least 300 more injured after a pair of truck bombs exploded during a traffic jam on a busy road. As of Sunday night, there had been no claim of credit. And I want to ask about Senator Bob Corker, who said something about you. He thinks President Trump is constantly undermining you. This is a Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He said the president has, quote, castrated you before the world stage. That's his word, not mine. What's your response to that? On Sunday, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was questioned by CNN's Jake Tapper about his standing in the White House. I checked. I'm fully intact. (laughs) I did not expect that answer. Days after the president said he had a higher IQ than his secretary of state, Tillerson told Tapper that Trump used unconventional methods to motivate people, including his own staff. This is an unconventional president. He uses unconventional communication tools. He uses unconventional techniques to motivate change.
That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.